Good morning. Good morning, everybody. I'm so glad to see all of you here that are here. We do have a lot of our people that are missing off either to participate in camp, our young people and our uh, older ones working and counseling at the camp. So we've got quite a few people that are going to be gone this week. We certainly want to pray for them and for their safety. And our Miss Madeline is uh, going to be gone for seven weeks uh, now and going to be going to some of the different camps uh, and helping out there. So it's going to be quite a trip for her. And we pray for your safety. Uh, we want to invite you to turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 8 this morning. As I promised a few weeks ago that we would come back and finish this study, we're going to do that, but I still have to just take a moment and say Happy Father's Day to all the dads that are here today. Uh, I, I'm not, if I were speaking every week, as, as I used to, I might have, have spent some time, more time on Father's Day today, but... Uh, I'm going to go ahead and finish what I started, but I do want to give a nod to all the dads that are here. Some of my best uh, dreams that I have. It's now been over 21 years since my father left this realm, and sometimes I dream and we walk the fields together. We're, we're doing all the kinds of things that we did, and those are some of the best dreams that I have when, I, when I'm sleeping. And when I'm awake, some of my best dreams are imagining and thinking of the day when all those dreams will come true, uh, when we'll be together again. Of that, I'm confident in the hope of Christ. So I'm comforted by sweet memories and look forward to that reunion one day. And I hope you share that with people that you love. We share it because of the one that we remembered around this table who gave hope to the world, who conquered death. Uh, who reminded us that God is a covenant keeper and he's never not uh, strayed from his love for humanity and his desire that we have life, life that can only be had with him because he is the only, as we will talk about this morning, true and living God. He's the source of life. And as I think about that statement, and I've thought about it many times, Genesis uh, and the flood and mankind being caught up in sin and what that means as I've developed that and God regretting that he'd made man on the earth. And I've had many thoughts about that, uh, but I, I believe at the center of that is not the regret of all uh, oh, uh, these, these terrible people. I just can't put a, it's the regret of seeing those that he made for life choosing death. And the consequence, which is never what he intended for them. It isn't what God intends for you either. God wants to give you life. He doesn't ever intend to limit you, to, to in some way restrain. He, he made you. He gave the life you have to you. He wants you to have it in its fullest. But the truth is, and it's the declaration that we learn in Scripture, you can't have it apart from him. And so God calls us to him, not merely because, and as is in the minds of so many, I'm God, you're not. You need to bow down because I am the God who is the God of all things, and so I made you to kneel. That isn't God. That's not him at all. 
It's the God who had in His greatness and in His grace and in His loving kindness the thought of creatures made in His image with whom He could share the richness of His own wisdom and glory in life. And He made us for that and invites us to it even though we've turned away from it and made ourselves, because of sin, unable to fully share it. But there's a path to God that has been made open. And it's our privilege to share the good news of that. That's what the gospel is. And we want to share it with each other. And if you're here visiting, we want to share it with you. Now this morning, we're talking about the relationship that God's people have with each other, how that grows and develops, really. How we share this love of God in Christ Jesus and how we maintain, even though we're imperfect, that relationship with each other that is built upon and grows within the love of God in Christ Jesus. And so oftentimes that breaks down in churches of all places because they forget, we forget who we are. We forget what brings us together and what it is that allows us to shine as lights in the world. I was just sitting there thinking a moment ago, I didn't share this earlier this morning, but it's a, it, it fits in this lesson. You know what's wrong with church business meetings? They often wind up with churches being ran like businesses. <laughs> That's what's wrong with them. Uh, it's that, that we forget we're, we're not a business. We're not in the business of the efficiently running organization. Oh, we may talk about those things. That's okay. But, but that's not our business. We're not simply here to become an efficiently run organization. That's not, that's not who we are. We're not trying to find the best and most economical way necessarily to do things. That's not who we are. We're here as the family of God in Christ Jesus to share the love of God with each other to grow together in understanding Him and, and understanding and knowing Him leads us to fall on our knees and say, what a great God you are. Thank you. Thank you, Lord, for your love and your redemption, for giving life to me. And it drives me to want to share it with other people. I love the God that I know, the true God, who has made Himself known in His loving kindness. So this morning, as we think about 1 Corinthians 8, and I was pleasantly surprised. I probably had as much response to this lesson of any lesson I've ever preached. But what that says to me is that this resonates with other people in the same way that it, is, that it resonates with me. And I can remember early in my preaching life, though I may not have said it well then, I may not say it as well as I'd like to now, studying the one another text and, and thinking about this particular aspect of, of how we are to consider one another, how we are to love one another, how we are to bear with the, those who are weak and, and resolve our differences uh, on most every level except for what we might call the jugular issues, those issues that are clear in scriptures and cannot be compromised. They're not many the, these are, uh, I think, Ephesians 4 type issues that are very clear in terms of the deity of Jesus, that He's the one Lord. We have one book, one faith, one body, one baptism. But there's so many issues that we need to understand that, 
that, that we may have differences of opinions on, but they're not to be sources of breaking down our communion with each other. They just can't do that. Not if we think the way we should. So as we look at 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians is a great book for this because Paul's writing in response to questions, at least the last half of the book, things that they wrote to Paul about. So chapter 7 sort of begins this. He says, concerning the things about which you wrote. So they wrote to Paul about certain matters and Paul takes them up. And each subject is introduced with that phrase, now concerning this thing. And so chapter eight begins concerning things sacrificed to idols. We know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he's not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. So as we look at this text, what we're really going to learn about is not so much about idols, which is, we might say, well, what's this have to do with us today? But if you heard the first lesson, uh, then you'll understand what we're really talking about is the exercise of Christian liberty. That's the broader issue. The specific issue Paul deals with is this question of eating things sacrificed to idols, how they were to handle that. And he's going to come back to idolatry in chapter 10. He's going to say, don't do it. Have no part of idolatry. But this subject is, but can we eat meat sacrificed to idols? The meat that's been offered, uh, is that okay? Can we buy the meat in the marketplace that was sacrificed to idols? Or is the connection with those things such that they become sinful and so we shouldn't participate in them? Well, the, there were varied opinions. Some said, oh, we can eat it. The idols are nothing. Meat is meat. We can eat the meat. Others said, no, you can't eat the meat because of idolatry. We don't want to practice idolatry. We don't want to give any honor to the gods uh, that are false gods. Don't eat the meat. So you had two different groups that were there. Uh, and so the question is that we're trying to pursue and that Paul really is addressing through this specific issue is what am I free to do as a Christian? And I need to understand that the exercise of my liberty impacts other people. How does that happen? And to what degree is my freedom limited by its impact upon other people? So Paul is addressing this issue and his instruction is very straightforward. He says the overarching principle that you are to be guided by is love. And the contrast is not getting to the heart of understanding the point. That is, knowledge isn't going to solve this issue for you. It's not a contrast between those who know what is right and those who do not, those who have knowledge and those who do not. It's between knowledge and love. Because he says, look, knowledge puffs up, love builds up. And his point in that, if you remember, his point is, it, it isn't a matter, well, I've got the truth on this and you just don't understand and therefore you need to yield and I'm not going to pay attention to you. Oh, and this group over here, no, we, I've got knowledge and you should know this is why I'm doing what I do. And if you were a lover of God, you'd do, do what I, Paul says, stop. Everybody has their point of view, but what God wants you to do is love each other. 
Treat each other with respect, not being judges of one another. Be in harmony with one another. And when God looks at this group and he sees that spirit, he says, there's my guy. And he looks at this fellow over here and he sees the spirit of his son. He says, that's my guy. That's what we need to strive for. We're going to be bound together in love. And so as we carry this forward this morning... We're going to look at some fundamental truths and then a final application. And so start reading in verse 4 as now Paul expands on this introduction. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there's no such thing as an idol in the world and that there's no God but one. For even, though, even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us... There is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for Him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through Him. However, not all men have this knowledge, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died." And so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it's weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Let me point out some fundamental truths that Paul points to in leading to his conclusion. The first one is an idol is nothing. He says, we know, we know an idol is nothing. Knowledge informs us that there is no really such thing as an idol that is a God that is in the presence of an idol. No such thing in the world. In Acts chapter 19 in the city of Ephesus, Demetrius the silversmith accused the Apostle Paul of saying that gods that are made with hands, that is, that's what we do. We make these gods and we sell these gods. But Paul is saying gods that are made with hands are no gods at all. They're not gods. They're, they're nothing. They're just pieces of silver, stone, whatever they may be. Paul says they're not gods. And so Paul here is again affirming, we know idols are not gods. There's no such thing. That's consistent through Scripture. That's a basic tenet of our Bible. Isaiah 44 has a kind of humorous picture of the idolater. He says, here's a guy, he goes out and he plants a tree. And the rain falls and the tree goes and grows. And one day he goes out and he chops the tree down. And he takes some of the wood and he builds a fire. And he heats himself and he cooks his food. Then he takes another piece of that same tree, that same wood, and he carves an idol out and he puts it up and he says, deliver me, you're my God. Oh, he bows down and worships. And if you'll pardon the pun, he's saying, look, no matter how you cut it, it's just a block of wood. 
You're bowing down in front of a block of wood. That's all it is. In the book of Psalms, in Psalms 115, there's another picture of idolatry. The writer says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. Because of your loving kindness, because of your truth. Why should the nation say, where now is their God? Where's your God? I don't see, I don't see any shrines or idols. So where, where's your God? How, that, that, and, and so the psalmist says, look, our God can't be seen that way. And if you're listening, what he is saying is, he manifests himself in his loving kindness. The goodness of the earth and all that's around us, that's God's presence made known. But he says this, but our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. Those who make them will become like them. Everyone who trusts in them. That's the danger of idolatry. You become like them. Men cannot make gods. God makes men. And so verse 24 says, Thus says the Lord your Redeemer and the one who formed you from the womb. I and the Lord am the maker of all things, stretching out the heavens by myself and spreading out the earth all alone. That's Isaiah. He made it all. He made us. We don't make gods. So that's the first truth. Then the second one is there's no God but one. The one who made it all, he's the only God there is. And so in 1 Corinthians 8 and verse 4, he says in the latter part, we know there's no such thing as an idol in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on the earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, that is, there are many so-called, yet for us, there's but one God, the Father from whom are all things, and we exist for Him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through Him. That's just an affirmation of the Hebrew Shema. The Lord our God is one. Paul is affirming here that the Father and Son are of the same nature, even though they have different functions, but they, and that they are unified together. And it's an absolute rejection of paganism. And it doesn't matter how it manifests itself, whether it's the pantheon of gods that the ancients worshipped, or the shrines of Hinduism or Buddhism uh, that people bow down to and pray to today. Those are not gods at all. Or whether it is the New Age spiritualism of our day and time, and all of the ideas of things that people ascribe power to and believe bless their lives, they don't. And I'm warning you, brethren, I'm going to kind of get off the topic a little bit here, but I think it's worthwhile. 
Idolatry is alive today. Paganism is alive today. It's actually becoming more and more uh, relevant today. And people are choosing it. Be aware and understand that there is no God but one. And give no credit. Where God gets uh, particularly riled is when people give credit to blocks of wood and stone and other things and false gods when they didn't do anything. It's the true and living God who acts and speaks. You know, it's one thing to eat meat and know that the idol is nothing. It's another thing to practice idolatry and eat the meat in homage to the idol. Eat the meat because you believe somehow you're going to be the better for it because the God to whom it was sacrificed is going to bring you a blessing. That is contrary to Scripture. That's contrary to what people should know and do. And Paul's warn, will warn about that in chapter 10. But I want to tell you, idols are nothing. There's one God and Father, one Lord, our Savior Jesus Christ. Idols are nothing. Astrology is nothing. It's nothing. Give no credence to it. I want to tell you, I, I used to, especially in my younger days, I, I, we got newspaper and they always had the, the uh, astrology for the day. And I would read that occasionally. I'm, you know, I knew I'm Scorpio. What does it say? You're a bright lad and smart and people are going to love you. Oh, that's a good, good day. You know, good to read. That's usually something like that that they will say. Beware of people who, uh, you know, look ominous. Oh, yeah, I'll be, you know. But I knew, I knew, this is just a bunch of silliness. I'm reading this. It's all silly. Uh, there's nothing to it. I knew that. As a kid, I knew that. I hope you know that. The alignment of stars or whatever, they have nothing, no power in them except the power we give to them. Now, there are people for whom astrology has power because they live their lives based upon what they may read. Oh, this is a bad thing. I shouldn't leave that. I won't leave the house today. Well, that's power. If they've read something and because they believe what they've read, they, they are afraid and they're trembling because, oh, I got a bad omen here, then that's, a, that's power. Have no fear. They have no power. There's no power in pyramids. None. So if you got one under your bed, it's okay with me. But if you think somehow you're receiving a force from somewhere and, and you get up, oh, I feel better today. The pyramid power. No, it didn't do a thing. You got a block of plastic or stone or whatever. It's under your bed. You might as well go out into the garden, pick up a rock, put it under your bed. They have no power. None. Don't, don't, don't be caught up in those things. Witchcraft is nothing. None. That's why they burned their books in Acts 19, because they understood that. I was in the bookstore this week, because my grandchildren love to read. And, uh, and, but I passed a section on witchcraft. And I just happened to pick one up on Wicca. And it was interesting to me as I was reading through, and it talked about in preparing for being a witch and practicing this, choose your gods that you're going to shape your life. This, this is all 
false gods. Everything about it is untrue. And people that have their lives controlled by it are controlled by nothing. The power that they have is the power we give them. That's all. Nothing else. Now, I want to tell you this. I, I have no problem at all. If your children read Harry Potter and they enjoy that and, and they read, it's no different than any other piece of fiction. As long as you're clear that they understand and you, it's just fiction. It's just a story with interesting things of made up things. And it could be all kinds of things like that, but there's no real power to any of those things. Nothing to fear from witches and things. There's only one God, one who gave us and gives life and who watches over us. And to him, we ascribe all glory Voodoo curses are nothing to fear because there's nothing behind them. Lucky charms are nothing to be particularly uh, thrilled about. I look for four-leaf clovers. It's lucky to find one because there are not many of them. Uh, but, as, you know, that's fine. That lucky pennies? You know, I found lucky pennies. I'd rather find a lucky quarter and a, or a lucky dollar. And what's lucky about it is that I found them. I have had a lucky, an unlucky $20 bill. And, and it was unlucky, I know, because I lost it. And, and that was not lucky. <laughs> that was very unlucky. Uh, so, no, those things, they're fine. If you, if you are in the moment and you, and you want to carry something around, if your grandmother gave you a, a coin and you carried it and you cherish it, but if you think life turns upon such things, no, don't get caught up in that. Oh, this is an ancient practice. Sometimes I hear brethren speaking, oh, this is, has some mystical, yeah, a false mystical, the things the Bible says, no, don't do those, they have nothing. They're just one God, just one. He's behind it all. Aaron made a golden calf and said, this is the God that brought you out of Egypt and led the people into sin. I was wrong. If your kids have a calf in their Fisher Price toys, it's Okay. Just don't teach them to pray to it. That's no, that would be wrong. That's that's understand the difference. So we ought to be able to distinguish. We ought to be able to teach our children the difference between fantasy and imagination and, and good stories and, and reality and help them with that. You have nothing to fear. And an amulet that you may come across if you travel to Egypt and you are part of a dig and you discover an ancient amulet that has the god Horus on it, you say, ooh, I got I want it. it has no more power than an amulet from Avalon that you buy in Walmart in honor of the Princess Elena. And if you have a bunch of granddaughters, you know who Elena is. But the one has no more power than the other in reality. We need to understand that. But it was a real problem in the first century. So there's just one true and living God. And Paul warns about idolatry in that regard in chapter 10. I won't take time to read that. But in chapter 10, he comes back to idolatry and he says, you don't have anything to do with idolatry. Whatever he's saying there is not an endorsement of participating in it. And some struggled with it. So there's one true and living God. And one Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And therefore, fundamental truth number three, as it applies to this issue, food doesn't bring us closer to God. It just doesn't. Oh, well, we knew that, right? 
You know, pe people today, well, we know that. I want to tell you, we have a lot of similarly misinformed notions about what brings a person closer to God. Some of it just has been ingrained in us. We'll never shake it. We'll never change it. But if we think about it, we will come to understand, you know, that really doesn't have anything to do with bringing a person closer to God. And Paul here says, look, your relationship with God is not a matter of a piece of meat. Well, seems to me pretty clear Paul's saying it's okay to eat meat, right? So that just settles it. Meat's just meat. It's okay to eat it. Looks like we're right. We meat eaters are right. No, that isn't what he says, really. That doesn't settle it. Because of the main issue, he says this. Look, you are no closer to God if you choose not to eat meat. You're not any closer to God. And you are no closer to God if you choose to eat meat. Neither of you. The choice to eat or not to eat doesn't bring you closer to God. It doesn't matter. Whether you eat or you don't eat has nothing to do with that. You know, we have some people in our day and time, and I have regard, there are a lot of people that advocate vegetarian food. They may be absolutely right that you will be healthier and feel better if you are a vegan. I, I, I don't know that, that, whether that's true or not. Many people are absolutely convinced and give testimony, and that may be true. And if my doctor said, yeah, you probably should give up eating meat or red meat or whatever it is, I would listen to the advice there that's given or people who, but if he says, and it'll bring you closer to God, you cross the line. No, it, it won't bring you any closer to God. Being a vegetarian is not, doesn't have a thing to do with your spirituality. So if you think all those meat eaters, those animal killers, they're, they're not as close to God as these people over here. That, no. And I will tell you, plants want to live too. No, that's not, that's not the issue. It doesn't matter whether you eat or don't eat. Understand what brings a person close to God. Don't judge. Now, if you have something in your conscience that says, well, I just have, fine. But don't judge your brother who differs with you on such matters. Read your scriptures and understand what truly builds a relationship with God. And the key element always is going to be love. And so verse, whoops, fundamental truth number four is this. When you sin against your brother by wounding his conscience when it's weak, you sin against Christ. And what that means is my liberty is not just a matter of a personal issue. My attitudes impact other people. So too bad for them, right? I mean, you know, I'm free to do it. And if you don't like it, it's just tough for you. You know, you just need to get over it because it's not my problem. Well, that's not what I'm reading here. Paul understood this. You know, when Jesus appeared to him, he said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Because when Paul persecuted the church, he was persecuting Christ. 
And when I wound the body of Christ, I'm wounding Christ to be in Christ, to wound my brother or sister in Christ, is to wound Christ. I don't have a right to disregard brothers and sisters or look down on them or treat them with contempt and especially never to knowingly wound them. There are no unimportant members of the body of Christ. And I'm not free. Listen to this. I am not free to do whatever I want if I'm a disciple of Christ. I'm not. I am free to do what pleases Him. Isn't that what commitment that we made? I'm free to do whatever pleases my Father. Whatever, wherever the Spirit of God leads me through His, His teaching. I'm not free to do what I like, but I want to tell you what He likes. He likes it when I love my brothers and sisters and I treat them with love. The Father loves that. And I've made a promise that I'm going to please Him. And at the heart of this issue in verse 7, not all men have this knowledge. Not everyone comes to a complete and mature understanding. In Corinth, there were Christians who just simply could not separate the meat from the idolatry. They came out of idolatry. They knew there was one God. They understood the truth of the matter. They were able to, to repeat that. They reckoned, but in their minds, in their conscience, they could not eat this food without giving some nod to the idol. Their conscience was wounded. They couldn't do it with the, and separate it from the practice of idolatry. And so their conscience was wounded. And they were never going to be able to resolve it simply by saying, well, you need a Bible class on idolatry. And once you come out of the 13 lessons, you'll be able to eat the meat. We'll, have your, we'll keep the supper in the freezer. So when you come out, it wasn't going to ever end that way. Paul said, don't worry about that. Just love each other. Treat each other with proper regard. And the danger for us is failing to understand this. This applies over a broad spectrum of principles. And that's why in verse 8, you have both a directive and corrective principle to the strong and a comfort to the weak. He says, but food will not commend us to God. We're neither the worse if we do not eat or the better if we do eat, but take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. That phrase, take care, makes this both an emphasis and a directive regarding the importance of it. Take care, brethren. Christian liberty operates within the boundaries of loving each other, and I may find that my liberty is restricted by the conscience of my brothers and sisters. So the strong are to bear with the weak, right? And doesn't that make sense intuitively? Uh, doesn't that, if you got a burden to bear, and, and, and I'm sharing the burden with my two-year-old Daphne, that, doesn't it make sense that I'm going to bear the larger part of that burden? And, and I'm not going to say, hey, you're not pulling your weight. Come on. It doesn't work that way. Oh, you say, what? what's wrong? The strong bear the larger burden. And in the body of Christ, those who are strong are to bear the burden of the weak. We're not to expect that they're going to 
carry their share in this regard. And if it means my liberties are limited out of love, that's what I'm to do. I'm to be careful here. And we must get this. Things that are right for us become wrong if they become a stumbling block to the weak. Now, this begs the question, and it's always the question that gets asked in a class. That's why I did this in a sermon. <clears throat> How in the world are we going to make progress if every time we try to step forward, somebody objects and says, well, I, I can't do that. You know, I, that's a, well, number one, that's where your leaders, your elders bear a great responsibility, making decisions for the group and, and people following the decisions and wisdom of the elders in making accommodations. But there's a difference between the weak and tyrants and fault finders who want to use this principle to burden the, everyone else to the limits of their conscience. That is, my conscience and its limits should limit all your behavior. And I don't have it, and that's just the way it should be. So I'll tell you how far you can go in your, all of your life. No, no one has the right to do that. And unless my conscience is truly being compromised, that is, I'm having to participate in your behavior and it can't be accommodated, I need to leave you alone, not judge you. If you're going to eat your meat in your home and I'm not, then that's fine. I'm not going to judge you for those things. We need to be careful about that. But always be ready to accommodate your brother's conscience and go as far as you need to go to do it. So the last thing he says, and this is the conclusion of the matter. In verse 13, he says, Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, and remembering from last week, what brother? The brother for whom Christ died. If it causes him to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Now, Paul's own declaration is pretty straightforward, isn't it? Paul says, I'm not going to worry about protecting my rights. If eating meat causes a brother to stumble, I will never eat it again. I'll give it up. My brother's more important because behind all of this is the recognition we're the body of Christ, the body for whom Christ died. And I want to tell you, this church has got amazing people in it who practice this. I just want us all to strive to practice it. It's what's going to keep us unified and allow us to be light. There are people that accommodate my weak conscience. Many people here who understand that, that we differ on issues and they, they give uh, gladly for the sake of the unity and harmony of the body. That's the way we need to be. And though we may differ, I have no judgment, nor will I re re refrain or restrain my love and fellowship for them because we may issue, may, may differ on, on an important matter. This was important because we're in Christ as brothers and sisters striving for heaven. And every time we take up such matters as this, let us always remember the lessons that we're learning Speak, Lord. I want to close with this. You see, the, the body of Christ, when it operates like this, it's not like any other thing on, in the earth. 
Only God transforms people this way. It's the love of God in Christ Jesus that brings us together from all of our different walks of life and places and countries and wherever it may be and brings us together in a harmony because we know that Christ died for us and bought us with his own blood. And we're here together in his name. And that's got to create a difference. We're not just a, a religious organization. We can never just be that. When we become that, that's what happens when you go out and you meet somebody and they say, oh, I've, mem I've met members of the Church of Christ. I've met members of your group. I don't want to meet another one. <laughs> if you've ever had that experience, then you understand what something's lacking. They, whoever that was, whatever the circumstance they didn't project the spirit that we need to walk in. Maybe they were part of a group <laughs> and what they saw in that group and the bitterness and the fighting and the struggling and the animosity and they let us say, this is the Lord's people? How I miss, you know, Ehrman would remind us often and, and I think of Ehrman a lot, but in the Lord's church, one of his friends, Mark? You mean in, in the Lord's church? Yes, brethren, in the Lord's church, would we behave that way? Would we think that way? Would we act that way? Not in the Lord's church. Not we who've come together around this table. And when we live together in love and celebrate this spirit that we have, we become a light like no others that draws people to the one we've been drawn to. Because we have a message for them. And if you're here today, what has transformed us is the love of God in Christ Jesus. And our message to you is, He died for you too. He loves you as well. Everything that we celebrate, He wants you to have. And that's our announcement to the world. It's not for us alone. It'll transform you too if you'll give yourself to it. Believe in the resurrected Lord who died and was raised to bring life and light to the world. And if you want to make a decision, I want to follow him. The one Lord, the one who has the power to give life. It starts by being buried with him. It's both a sign, a symbol, but it comes with power. And the reason it has power is because there's a living God behind it who takes us down into the water by His Spirit and raises us up in Christ Jesus to have life with Him. And if you want to do that this morning and join with us, we invite you to come while we stand and sing the invitation song.